a number of months ago now that I spoke with Chris about what I would speak on here and we decided on the topic of uh, deliver us from evil. Now I've spent a number of months reading and thinking and filling my brain with facts. In fact, at one stage I actually thought my brain would explode. Cathy snapped this, uh, this photo of me uh, the other day. Um, you can see that my head was almost at bursting point. But anyway, things have um, recovered now. <laughs> I saw a cartoon once of two little boys talking. One said to the other, Do you believe in the devil? The other said to him, No. It's just like Santa Claus. It's really just your father. Now, <laughs> there's people who... Um, do or don't believe in the devil. The English writer C.S. Lewis said about the devil perhaps one of the most um, insightful quotes that you'll find as you read around different literature and so on. Here's what he said. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And here's the thing, throughout our world, those two different errors are alive and well. There are some people who say the devil just doesn't exist. So, for example, um, here's a retired uh, Episcopalian bishop. Now, you'd always beware of bishops, okay? Always beware of bishops. This is what uh, John Shelby Spong said. He said, evil is real, but an external being who causes it is a human projection of part of our own reality into the external world of being. The devil is an excuse, something to blame, part of a system of control that religious institutions set up to keep themselves dominant. Belief in an external devil has done more harm than we can imagine. Executing the witches of Salem, Massachusetts is only one of them. It is time for the human race to grow up and let go of such childish, of these childish ideas. And do you know what? There are many, many people who don't believe in the devil. Now, I can't tell you about Singapore or uh, Malaysia, but in my country, back home in Australia, in the National Church Life Survey uh, website, um, they'll tell me, if you go and look there, NCLS, National Church Life Survey, they'll say that only a third of Australians believe in a personal devil. That's a third of just your average pagan Aussie, uh, 33%. But when you go to our churches, people who actually attend church regularly, the situation's not much better. There's only about half say they actually believe in a personal devil. Half. And 42% of people say they think the devil is, quote, uh, the devil was not a personal being but rather a symbol of evil forces in the world today. When it comes to the topic of spiritual warfare, three quarters of Australians are walking around with no idea and 40% of those in churches. So people don't believe in the devil at all. But then there's the other side of it where people have a, an unhealthy interest. If you go to the website, actually I'm not going to tell you which website this is, but a, a particular website that says, you can and do have demons. Everyone has demons. This includes all Christians. For those of you who demand to see a scripture before you can believe something, there is no scripture that says you do not have demons. That should settle it. And so they say, in your soul, if you have a bad temper, that's a demon. If you have a mental illness in your family background, that's a demon. If you have trouble serving God, that's a demon. Uh, do you have a problem with bad thoughts? That's a demon. In fact, they say on this website there are two demons called Boyce, B-O-Y-C-E, and Boyce, B-O-I-C-E. They're two demons that interfere with electronic equipment, i.e. phone, computer, printer and automobile. If something malfunctions, command these two demons to leave your equipment in the name of Jesus. We get emails saying this worked. Now, I guess that makes sense, but if, uh, you don't get emails from the people where it didn't work, I guess, but anyway, that's... So you get what's called deliverance ministries where people will say that Christians, those who belong to Jesus, will have demons that live in them and cause them to sin in certain ways and these demons need to be exorcised. And there's a huge range of deliverance ministries, if you like, from people who are kind of careful and conservative um, uh, who, and, and right out to people who are kind of the extreme crazy end. 
And so you've got under the one umbrella, the one kind of inverted commas Christian umbrella, people who don't believe in the devil at all, and then people who see the devil under every, uh, under every chair, uh, the devil behind every traffic delay. Now, what's the truth? This week, over six talks I've been asked, this week I want to take you through what the Bible says about spiritual warfare and where we stand with the powers of evil. But I'd like to, maybe I could have changed the title a little bit. I know we've said deliver us from evil, which is a line from the Lord's Prayer. But I wonder if I could have actually just changed it to delivered, past tense, delivered from evil. Because if you belong to Jesus, you have been. 1 John chapter 3 verse, um, sorry, 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's the reason that Jesus came, to destroy the devil's work. Uh, this week, I hope, if you go home from camp and someone says, um, what, what happened at camp, what was the speaker all about? And you say, oh, we had this baldy-headed Aussie and uh, he spoke about the devil. If you say that, I have failed. No, I've failed. I'm going to just move over here a little bit because these nights, I don't know, you might not want to see me, but I want to see you. There you go. No, no, now I can see all these people. There we go. Great. Okay, there you go. Hmm? You want to? Okay. Right. So if you say we had this baldy headed Aussie and he spoke about the devil, I've failed. What I want you to do is to go home and say we had this baldy headed Aussie and what he talked about all the time was the victory of Jesus. The victory of Jesus. Let me go through a couple of ground rules though. Um, And it's really important as you come to this topic, because it's so controversial and difficult and so on, um, it's worth getting some ground rules right. Here's the thing. When you look at a really interesting topic, and hey, you know, the devil, demons, all that kind of, you know, head spin around, green vomit, all that kind of stuff, it's very interesting. When you look at that, uh, when the Bible doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know, there's a great temptation to want to actually kind of supplement what the Bible says and supplement it from experience or other sources of information and that kind of thing. The Bible does not answer every question we want to ask. I think deliberately the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know. The Bible isn't there to satisfy our curiosity. The Bible is there to instruct us from God what we need to know, what we need to follow Christ. What I've, what I've found is as I've looked at, the, at, at understanding the devil, two things have surprised me. One, how often the devil is mentioned in the New Testament, over 80 times. How often he's mentioned. The other thing that surprised me is how little we're told. We're told just enough to be told to stay away, stay alert, take this seriously, don't get involved. But, uh, what you've got to do is start with Scripture and interpret our experiences by the light of what Scripture says. What you mustn't do is start with experiences and then interpret scripture in the light of that. Scripture has to be our authority. Now the next thing to say, the Bible is not a bag of marbles. See, some people treat the Bible like just a bag of marbles and you reach in and you grab a marble. Whoa, look at that, okay? Um, And then the next one and the next one. No, no, the Bible is a story. And you've got to be wise about, you take verses, it's all the word of God, I believe, all authoritative, Okay. But you've got to be wise in, in where in the story you've taken. Have you taken a verse out of Genesis or is it a verse out of Chronicles or is it a verse from the Gospels or is it a verse from the Epistles? You've just got to be wise at where, what part of the story have you quoted from, are you taking this from? So, for example, people will say, Jesus did this and this and this, therefore we should what? The application may actually be, Jesus did this, this and this, therefore we should remember that we're not God and he is. Okay? Just because Jesus did it doesn't mean we should do it. He's God. Um, The job of Messiah is already taken. Okay. Um, One other thing to say too. Uh, As you've already picked, I'm an Aussie, or as my wife says, a white man. Now, I'd like to meet someone Chinese who can say white man without rolling their eyes because whenever she says it, it's white man, right? Or no, actually it is you white man with a roll of the eyes. um, Anyway, or sometimes she says, you're not just white on the outside, you're white all the way through. Um, Anyway, here's the thing. There will be lots of things about 
the background, the culture that you have come from, um, that, that will have particular insights or particular problems or whatever with the spirit world. Okay? I have some understanding of where I grew up and what the delight that the scriptures shed on the spirit world, but there may be questions that you have. I'm more than happy to be educated and we'll have a question box, I hope, um, after, um, especially after tomorrow's session onwards. And any difficult questions about particularly Asian culture and the spirit world, straight to Pastor Chia. Uh, it'll be great. Okay, so the way that these six talks will work, um, I've got the first three talks are about the victory of Jesus. So we've got delivered, delivered from evil by grace, and the second talk, delivered from evil by the stronger man, that's Mark 3, and then delivered from evil by the cross. Uh, tomorrow morning's talk is brutal. I'm sorry, it's going to be a big, long download about the devil. And, uh, come along, it'll be good for you, but it'll be a bit like going to the dentist, it's good for you. But uh, as we move to the second half of the week, the talks get probably a little shorter um, and there's a little more application, maybe a little easier to listen to. Um, the fourth one is about resist the devil and five and six are actually about spiritual warfare from Ephesians 6. And so we'll be talking about kind of personal, real, nitty-gritty application in the last three talks. Gentlemen, if you're married, make sure you bring your wife to talk five. I'm not going to say why, just make sure you bring your wife to talk five. You've been told. You're going to miss a talk? That's fine. Don't miss talk five. Okay, enough said. Right up. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 uh, what I'd like to talk about is, what is it that we have been delivered from? If we're talking about being delivered from evil, what is it that God has delivered us from? See, I wonder if you ever, have you ever thought, we say it's a big deal being a Christian and uh, you know, the Christian, non-Christian worldview and so on, the, the change. But have you ever noticed, have you ever thought sometimes, I know people who aren't Christian who are really, really nice. Right, really, like really, really nice. And I know people, so there's a non-Christians who are really, really nice, and I know Christians who are a real pain in the... Um, we're recording this, aren't we? Okay, uh, who are a real... Um, really hard to get on with, okay? And the, so the Christians, you kind of see them coming, you think, oh, help, where can I hide? And there's non-Christians... So you think, well, wait a minute, you've got... Non-Christians who are really nice and Christians who are really difficult and does it really matter that much? Is there really that much of a difference between someone who's Christian and someone who's not? The answer, yes, in every way. A huge difference. Light and darkness, life and death. And that's what, in Ephesians chapter 2, what the Apostle Paul's trying to do is to teach these people, these Christians in Ephesus, to show them what it is that God has done for them. So as he writes to the Christians in Ephesus, and it's probably like a, a circular letter to a number of different churches, and Paul hasn't necessarily met all of these people himself, uh, as he writes to them, he's telling them what it is that God has done for them. In chapter 1, he summarises the great blessings that God has given these people who belong to Jesus. See chapter 1, verse 3? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Notice he doesn't say, we look forward one day that God will bless us. He says, God has already blessed you if you belong to Jesus. And then he goes on and spells out what those blessings are. Uh, in verse, um, let me see, verse 4, he talks about that God predestined us. God chose us in advance before the creation of the world. In the same verse, God adopted us as his sons and daughters. God brought us into his family. Uh, and go down a little bit further in verse 7. Uh, we have redemption. God paid the price to have us brought into his family, paid the price to have our sins forgiven. Uh, then if you look over to, um, say, verse um, 13, verse 14, he talks about us being, end of verse 13, that we've been given the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So predestined, adopted, forgiven, redeemed, given God's spirit, all of those things. And he thanks God for that. And then in the second half of, the chap of chapter 1, what he prays is, is that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation that God would open their minds to be able to understand the hope that he's called them to, the inheritance that they're waiting for. In other words, how good our future is because we belong to Jesus. And what he does in chapter 2, 
And here's where we start to drill down a bit. What he does in chapter 2 is explain to them, these people who've become Christian, the huge change that has happened in what they used to be compared to what they are now. Um, in chapter 2. And have a look, chapter 2, verse 1, he's actually talking to people uh, who were Gentiles, or particularly he's talking to the Gentiles here. See, 2, verse 1, as for you, uh, that's Gentiles, because if you see in chapter 2, verse 3, where he's probably talking to the Jewish people, all of us also lived uh, among them. And then at the end of verse um, 3, you've got, um, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So, the Gentiles in verse 1, the Jewish people in verse 3, um, what's he saying? Well, he talks about three forces, three powers, if you like, that were at work in the, in the world and in the lives, of, that were at work in the lives of these people. See, in verse 1 he talks about the world. Look at verse 2. He says, In which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. Uh, literally, what he says is, when you walked, the NIV translates walked as lived, but it's the idea of when you walked according to the age of this world. When you walked according to the age of this world. The way the Bible sees, the Bible writers see the world, or see the, you know, life, there's two ages. There's this age, and then there's the age to come, the age of the spirit, the age when God's people will have eternal life. And what he's saying is, the Ephesians, before they became Christians, they used to live or walk according to the age of this world. And when the Bible writers use the word world, usually what they're talking about is not the planet. The world is um, humanity in opposition to God. It's, it's almost like um, human culture. Human culture that just... The whole kind of flow of the river of human culture is away from and against God. And you see it all around us. Sometimes the opposition to God is kind of um, passive. So most of the time in Australia, people just don't care. Uh, that's all right, we'll just go to the beach, who cares? Other times, people are really aggressive and angry about God. So if you've read uh, Richard Dawkins, you know, The God Delusion, um, no need to bother really, especially don't buy it, don't give him any money. Um, but uh, Richard Dawkins is shouting at us about God. Richard Dawkins says evolution should lead to just blind, pitiless indifference. But Professor Dawkins is not indifferent. He is angry with the God who's not there. See, it's a world um, that flows, that carries people away from God. People who live for this age, see, humanity or the world lives now, uh, lives for this age. And here's the thing, you can't see it. Usually the world we live in uh, is invisible. Like our worldview or our cultures, like the glasses that we wear, or if you wear glasses, after a while you forget they're there and you don't even see them. That's the cultures that, that we live in. So in my country, back home in Australia, the air we breathe, the world, is, is materialism. And almost no one questions it. Materialism that's just kind of out of control. Materialism that means, you know what, we are three times wealthier in Australia than we were in 1950. I mean, in, econo you know, in, in adjusted terms, in real terms, we're three times wealthier than we were in 1950. We're seven times wealthier than we were 100 years ago. But it, it's never enough. We've got people choosing not to have children because it costs too much. We've got one in four, roughly. It's very hard to get statistics on on abortion, but we've got one in four babies aborted. Many of them aborted for lifestyle reasons. In the last 10 years of the Howard, and when we had the Howard government, uh, before the global financial GFC, whatever, you know, global financial meltdown, in the 10 years before that we had a, mine, a boom in the country. And the average asset value of the Australian family doubled. The size of our houses, um, the floor space per person of new houses doubled from 1970 to the early 2000s. Our houses are twice as big and yet at the same time we spent more money on our pets than we spent on all our overseas aid. We built houses so big, there are suburbs in around Sydney near where Cathy and I live that are so big, the houses are so big 
They don't have ride-on lawnmowers anymore. They have ride-on vacuum cleaners, all right? That's how big they are. And who's at home during the day? The pets. That's it, who's at home during the day. Do you know why? Because the people that own these gigantic houses are out working three jobs to pay for them. And it hasn't delivered and it's just never enough and that's the way of the world. A world that doesn't think about tomorrow, doesn't think about God, just thinks if I have more, I'll be happier. Or in my country, people live for hedonism. I'm sure it's not the same in Singapore or Malaysia, right? but hedonism, just the pursuit of pleasure. If you, if hedonism is your God, do you know what you worship? You'll worship sex and you'll worship youth. And what have we done in my country? We've devalued sex. It's, it's cheap, it's, it, it's meaningless almost. And the other thing we see is this endless stream of young, beautiful people on the media and so on. And the pressure is on that you've got to look good because your value as a human being depends exactly on how you look. And I know that's right because, you know what, more and more Australians are having plastic surgery. In fact, I checked it up the other day. Uh, Australians, last year, in 2007, Australians spent $300 million on treatments like Botox injections, uh, which treat wrinkles by paralysing face muscles. In fact, Australians now spend more money on plastic surgery and Botox injections than per capita than Americans do. You can see I haven't been wasting any money on it, but... Uh, <laughs> and by the way, lest you think I'm having a go at the ladies, in Australia, men now have as many plastic surgery procedures as women. Why do we want to do it? Why? And I'm not having a go if you've done it, okay? All right. But why do we want to do it? It's because the pressure is on what you're worth is all dependent on what you look like because hedonism, sex, youth, beauty, is God, isn't it? And the other thing you don't do is think about death. The one topic you're not allowed to mention in my country is death. People, you ask someone, what would you do if you won the lottery? And people buy their lottery tickets or lotto or Powerball or whatever it is and they can tell you a big long list of things that they do if they ever won the lottery. And the chances of winning the lottery are one in, you know, 10 million. And you say, well, what would happen if you die? What, what do you think happens when you die? And they say, well, I don't know, I've never really thought about it. I say, well, look, I don't want to break it to you, but like the mortality rate hovers around 100%. You know, like maybe you could think about it. No, we wouldn't want to do that. Because we don't want to think too much. Average Australian watches television two hours a day, 14 hours a week. I got on the net and went to Computer World magazine where they said the average Australian spends 47 hours a week staring at a screen, surfing the net, playing computer games, watching television, and we don't, whatever you do, don't think about too much. We live in a world that frantically chases money, doesn't think about the future, um, tries not to think at all, and what is that word, the other force at work? See in verse 2, all of us also lived among them at one time, sorry, verse 3, verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. The NIV's got, uh, translates sinful nature, the, the word is literally the flesh, who you are, your flesh. And I mean, it's a fair translation because it's saying it's just naturally, by nature, our, our old selves walk away from God. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, what's the Apostle Paul say about our old nature? He says, the acts of the sinful nature, or literally the deeds of the flesh, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. You know what? If you just scratch just a little bit, that's our world, isn't it? Um, it's certainly what's on the shelves of the video store in the suburb where we live. It's what people want to watch to entertain ourselves. We are selfish, aren't we? There's a billboard on the way as I drive to Sydney. There's a billboard um, that's uh, for uh, Virgin International Airlines. And it's got a picture of one person sitting in an airline seat with a flight attendant waiting on just that one person. And the, and the, um, the banner says, you're flying to LA. Of course it's all about you. And as I drive past, I thought, 
I thought there's probably 500 other people on the flight as well. But no, no, it's all about you, isn't it? Well, no, it's not actually, it's about me. Because that's... And we don't have to teach our kids to lie or do we? We don't never have to teach our kids to sin. It's just anyone who believes little kids are basically good has never had them. I remember one time, I, I mean, I love my son dearly, but I do remember the time I walked into the bathroom. It was a while ago now. Those, they had the two girls and our, um, the youngest one hadn't been born. So we had the two girls and our boy about, I don't know, 18 months old, just kind of toddling. And as I walked in, the bathroom was underwater. Underwater. There's like two inches of water on the bathroom floor sloshing around. And he had a little orange bucket full of water. And as I walked into the bathroom, he was tipping the, the, he'd been just emptying the bath onto the floor, right? And he had a bucket of water and he was tipping it. And as I walked in, our eyes met. I looked at him, he looked at me as he was pouring the water onto the bathroom floor. And then in an inspirational moment of parenting, I grabbed him by the arm, pointed at the floor and said, did you do that? And he said, no. <laughs> now, which just shows my son is a sinner and I'm an idiot. Huh? Uh, you never have to teach them. You never have to teach them. Little children mistakenly believe that adults are always good. Adults mistakenly believe that little children are good. We're not. We're not. And here's the thing. We're so clever and yet flawed at the same time, aren't we? We're clever enough, say, to invent the internet. What an amazing thing. Talk to anyone anywhere in the world, transfer information, all that kind of... And you know what now we're madly trying to catch up with? We're trying to actually stop sexual predators from preying on teenagers. We're trying to control pornography that's just a, a virus. We're trying to control computer viruses. We're trying to control con men. And the latest one I've heard of is cyberbullying. And we're so clever and yet we, we, we're evil. Swine flu. Um, uh, the, the pandemic or, or pandemic or whatever it is starts, you know, within a couple of days, people were sending out spam email about um, fake, what's it called, Tamiflu. So we, we're clever enough to invent the, the, uh, the cure for this thing and then someone's evil enough to sell, to prey on the fears of others and sell fake Tamiflu and we... Or the creation of wealth. We're so clever that we've learned how to create wealth and greed means that it's a house of cards that we've built. Or we can communicate around the world. No trouble at all. We pick up a mobile phone, talk to someone in another country like that and yet we can't communicate across the breakfast table. What's wrong with this? You know, people will say, oh, look, if there's any kind of social problem, what we need to do is just educate people. Just more education. That'll fix it, won't it? No, it won't. Um, I don't know if you read, if you, at school, where, where you went to school, uh, when I was a kid, we had to read a book called The Lord of the Flies. I don't know if you've heard of that book. Very interesting. About a group of British schoolboys stranded on a kind of a desert island and um, written by William Golding in 1954. And basically what happens without adult supervision, these boys, 10, 12 years old, turn into little savages and start murdering one another. It's a brilliant book, and having been the manager of an under-10s rugby team, it's exactly right, exactly. Now, I'm not saying that everyone's a monster. That, no, I'm not saying everyone's a monster. What I want to say is, when the pressure is on, and you get between someone and something they really, really want, you watch the niceness evaporate. And, of course, the third power at work is the Lord of the Flies himself. The Lord of the Flies, he, uh, Golding chose the name of the, of the book carefully. The Lord of the Flies is, of course, one of the names for the devil. You see verse 2? In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, uh, uh, the spirit world that is above us. He's also called the God of this world. In John's Gospel, he's called the Prince of this world. More likely or more often, he's called the devil. The devil's just a Greek word translated, which means the accuser or slanderer. 
or Satan, and the two titles are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Satan is uh, from a Hebrew word that means adversary. And Jesus teaches us, the New Testament teaches us, that the devil is real. Real, personal, supernatural evil. A spiritual being who is powerful and real and is our enemy. Now, now there's no sense of dualism in the Bible. Ne- the Bible never presents that there's, that, you know, there's some great arm wrestle going on between God and the devil and who will win and we don't know. No, no, there's none of that. But the Bible does say that the devil is real and powerful and should be treated as such. And what is his aim? Well, we'll see this week. The devil's aim is to dishonour God and bring death to people. That's his aim, to bring death and destruction and misery and to dishonour God in doing it. And here's the thing. To say there is no devil, have you ever actually thought of our world and the mess that it's in? The mess that it's in at the level of, you know, of, of nations, the mess that it's in at the level of cities, greed and pollution and violence and exploitation and abuse and, and dysfunctional families and personal lives and there is something going on. I mean, we're bad, but not that bad, are we? See, it's also hard to work out, well, all right, Paul says the world, the flesh and the devil. Which one? When something bad happens or the mess that we're in, how do you work out which is the devil and which is, which is the world and which is us? And It's a little bit like the sweet lady that cooked me breakfast this morning. She was really nice in a little chef's outfit and stuff and she said, would you like an omelette? Um, yes, please. Okay, and so she cooked. I'm not saying this lady's like the devil. This is no, no. It's a sweet, sweet lady who's a chef. And what she did was she took two or three eggs and mixed them up and cooked me this beautiful omelette. And just as you could never take those eggs apart, it's what does the devil do? The world, the flesh, his influence, and he cooks us up a very nasty omelette. And sometimes you can't separate out what's there and what's not and the world and the flesh and the devil work together seamlessly. And what's the result? You see, um, well, spiritual death. Chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Don't you have people like that? Uh, um, friends, relatives, I know I've got, I've got friends and, and family members and so on, and you want to talk to them about God and Jesus and, and you love God and you know Jesus and you, and you talk to them and, and it's like staring into the face of a teddy bear, isn't it? You just get those kind of teddy bear eyes looking, try it sometimes, the teddy bear, that's, it's that same, there's just nothing there. There's spiritually dead, that's what Paul's saying, isn't it? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 3, like the rest, verse 1, you were, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Look at verse 3. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Literally, it is children of wrath. And what's he saying? God is angry with our world, with us. And here's the thing. If you do not take the anger of God seriously, you will never understand the gospel. You will never understand the gospel. I had to speak on the topic of hell at a men's convention last year. I spent three months reading and thinking and, and I didn't sleep well. And you know what? There's probably been the time when I've been most spiritually alive in years to be aware of hell. Because Jesus teaches about hell again and again and again. Of the 12 times it's mentioned in the New Testament, 11 of those are on the lips of Jesus. And Jesus warns us about it again and again in different word pictures like the lake of fire and outer darkness and the grinding of teeth. And each of those kind of shows us a different aspect of the terror of it. And what the New Testament teaches us is if we keep walking away from God, the the, the punishment will fit the crime that God will send us away from himself. This empty, lonely, hopeless place. And the most terrifying thing of all about being children of wrath is this, it will never end. It will never end. And why? Because there will be no repentance. People will not turn back to God. Because even repentance is a gift from God. C.S. Lewis said, The doors of hell will be locked on the inside. 
our life kind of laboured the point, yes, because unless you understand how dark things are, you won't understand the great news of verse 4. What's he say? But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. That, that's where, but, things were like that, but God who is rich in mercy. You thought, wait a minute, I, mean, I thought God's angry with us. So is God angry with us or does he love us? Now that the opposite of love is not anger. Anger and love aren't opposite. Do you know what the opposite of love is? Indifference. You don't care. See, if I see two kids misbehave um, uh, and, and they do the wrong thing, the one that I'm angry about is my kid. Why? Because I love him and I expect him to behave better than that. The other kid, I don't care as much. Love and anger actually go together. Uh, what's he say? Uh, God who is rich in mercy, God who treats us so much better than we deserve, in verse 5, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. God has given us spiritual life and brought us back to him. See, God rescues us. Our, that Jesus dies in our place so that we can be forgiven. God puts my guilt on his son. The Bible's word for it is regeneration. God makes us alive spiritually so that we actually want to know him and serve him and God gives us his spirit. And once he done verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. See, that's how you should think of yourself. I know we're seated here in the palace of the golden horses and it's pretty good, okay? But we should actually think of ourselves as seated with Christ, um, as, as belonging to Jesus in heaven. I know we're still here, okay? But that's how you should think of yourself, as actually seated with Christ. Paul says a different way in Colossians. Colossians 3, he says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Think about being there with Jesus. That's the way you should think of yourself. Or in Hebrews 12, it says, You have come to Mount Zion in heaven, after the church of the firstborn. Um, ARPC is pretty good, okay? But even better than that, is the church of the firstborn. You actually belong to Jesus' church in heaven. Now, why has God done this? Look at verse 7. In order that, in the coming ages, right, the age of the Spirit, in eternity, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I want to show you something that... Um, Hope you, this is very politically incorrect. If you're a politically correct person, don't look at this, okay? Uh, here's what I want to show you. Uh, Joy, yeah. Okay, now what is that? Tell you what that is. That is a bubble-wrapped head of an Asiatic buffalo. I, um, I shot this buffalo in the Northern Territory and I had him stuffed. And um, he's there and he's arrived. Like, so you have a look. He's huge. He's like, that slouches. He's got horns this big, as big as your arms. And he's wrapped in bubble wrap and he's got little cute um, cardboard things over his ears like that. Now, the reason he's still bubble wrapped is because my wife won't let me put him up in the house um, because he's arrived and he weighs about 30 kilos and she thinks that he will rip a big chunk out of the wall. You still think that, don't you? Yes, that's what she's saying. Okay, um, so my buffalo trophy may actually spend the rest of his life sitting in my study like that. Um, so it's more kind of a monument to me thinking, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Anyway, now, why do I say this? God is much wiser than me and his trophies are much better. See verse 7? We will be a trophy of God's grace for all eternity, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. For all of eternity, God will be able to say, you want to see my grace at work? Look at that motley bunch that I rescued. They're my trophies of grace. And I've made them to be like my son. You know, we must have been pretty special for God to choose us like that, really, must not we? You know, for God, God chose us, we're his trophies, and really we must... No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Do you notice back in chapter 1, Paul talks about predestination? What a wonderful word that is. Don't let anyone ever tell you that we don't want to be about predestination. Predestination is about God taking the initiative to save people. 
If you, if you cross out predestination, everyone goes to hell like they deserve. I'm a predestination man. But why does Paul tell us about predestination? He's saying, God chose to save you before the creation of the world. What did you contribute to it? Nothing at all. Can you be proud about being, like, that you've chosen to be a Christian? Can you? No. It's about humility. You contributed nothing. And just in case we don't get it, look at what he says in verse 8. These beautiful words. He says, For it is by grace, God's undeserved generosity, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's God's gift. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. In fact, the faith that you have, faith is the trust to reach out and accept God's gift. And is faith the good work that we contribute? Faith's a good thing we contribute, right? No. You see, at the end of verse 8, even faith is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. God gives you the faith, the trust, to be able to accept it. It's all of God. And just in case we don't get it, he says it again in verse 9. Not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, the way the world works, isn't it? That we kind of perform and we work hard and, and you know, we study or, um, uh, you know, we study or we do well in business or we do well at our jobs and we behave and we're good family members and all that kind of thing. And then when we're good and we behave, people like us. Family members love us, right? That's what we learn. It takes a long time to unwire that out of our brains in the way we relate to God. God loves us. God saves us. Why? Because he loves us, not because we earn it. And as soon as you start thinking, oh, it's my performance that makes me acceptable to God, and we start doing it in sneaky little ways. It kind of sneaks into how often I've made it to church or how much of my Bible I've read or how much I've done this or how much I give or how much whatever it is. As soon as you start thinking it's about my performance, I'll tell you what it leads to. Two, two possibilities. One is pride. Aren't I good? I made it to church almost every week last year. Aren't I good? I've read my, you know, um, I've been doing my quiet time journal almost every week. He never does it. You know, like, my, what does Jesus say in the, um, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. Pride? Well, you know the other one? If you can't perform... If you're not living up to it, if you're not better than other people, it leads to anxiety. Um, it's really hard. It's the idea of having to earn someone's love that just destroys their lives. You ever seen the movie um, Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks? You want to just kind of, just quiet kind of nod if you've seen that? Anyone? Okay, couple? Okay, for the two of you that have. Um, basically, saving private rhyme about. If you haven't seen it, I think I'm about to spoil the end for you, okay? So you can pop your ears at it. Alright, okay. Saving private rhyme is a story of six to eight men in a platoon who are sent to save, surprise, surprise, private Ryan, okay? And um, Matt, Matt um, what's his name? The cute one. Um, the, what's his name? The, Matt Damon, thanks. Matt Damon, yeah, the, the, the young one. He's Private Ryan and he gets saved, right? Now, at the end, Tom Hanks, uh, Captain Miller, gets shot. Sorry to spoil it for you. Okay, and as Tom Hanks is dying, um, in fact, six or eight of them have all died to save this one man, Private Ryan. And as Tom Hanks is lying, dying, and Matt Damon comes up to him, Tom Hanks opens his mouth and the last thing that Tom Hanks says, or Captain Miller says he's about to die, is to Private Ryan, he says, anyone remember? Yes, earn this. You watch me. Earn this. So here is Private Ryan, who's just had eight men die to rescue him, and the last thing that Captain Miller says is, earn this. You know what? The movie's exactly accurate because 40 or 50 years later, an old man, Mr. Ryan, comes back to the scene of the battlefield and he's a quaking mess because he spent the whole of his last 40 or 50 years trying to earn this and live the best life that he can. And, uh, and he's, a, he's a mental wreck when he comes back. Have I been good enough? Have I done this? Have I... And here's the thing. The gospel's so different, isn't it? 
Because what does the Lord Jesus say on the cross? As the Lord Jesus dies for us, does he say, earn this? No. What's he say? He says, it is finished. It's a gift. Enjoy it. It's done. Trust me. You see, the gospel is so different. So different. It is finished. And how, why do we live the right way? We live the right way out of gratitude. See verse 10. For we have God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Once you're a Christian, you live the right way. Why? Because that's what we're made to do, not to earn God's favour. And just to say, some of you may not be there yet. Some of you may not yet have trusted the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. But if you can feel the stirrings in your heart, if you know this is true, if you want to walk towards him, that is the work of God's spirit. Walk towards him. Trust him. Ask him to open your heart so you understand. I tell you, you'll move from darkness to light. Well, look, just look back or remember the changes. What we have, you, you go from being spiritually dead to alive. You go from following the ways of the world and the devil to being seated with Christ. You go from the wrath of God to the mercy of God. You go from, see, verse 2, you walk in the ways of this world, says in the original. In verse 10 it then says, and the good works that God wants us to walk in. It's such a change. Now, why have I started with this passage? I wanted to go over what the gospel is, but also spiritual warfare. The way that the Bible teaches that spiritual warfare is really simply taking these truths and drilling them into your head and your heart and deeply understanding the gospel of God's grace and faithfulness and God's promises. And that's what the heart of spiritual warfare is all about. And what difference will it make? It will mean we live with gratitude to God. It will mean we live with joy. It will mean we live with humility. Because all of a sudden we'll realise, you know what? It's not all about me. God's the centre of the world, not me. And you know what else it will mean? It will mean patience. It will mean patience. If you are spiritually alive, if you understand about Jesus, if you want to serve him, if you want to love him, it'll mean, you know what, that you can be patient with people who just don't get it. I mean, I've been a Christian 30 years and there are some people who aren't believers that I've been praying for for 30 years. And I'll bet there's many of you who have been praying for people for longer than that. 30 years and we still teddy bear eyes. And I need to be patient because God opened my heart I need to pray that God will open ears. And there are a few others that I love dearly and pray for three, four, five, six times a day that God would open their heart to. And what difference will it make? I want to tell you, now is the time to understand these truths deeply. Deeply. Because we will all face hard times in life. We will all face suffering. If you haven't yet, it's on the way, be assured. You will face suffering and heartache and difficulties and one day death and it's understanding these truths that will make all the difference. I want to conclude by reading a letter from a friend of mine uh, who has a terminal illness. Um, she has motor neurone disease. It will kill her. Um, I wrote to her and said that a friend of mine, um, a friend of mine, her father, a friend's father had motor neurone disease and my friend was really angry with God. And this is what my friend wrote back. Uh, she can't talk anymore. Her, her voice doesn't work. But she wrote this letter back to me about her and motor neurone disease. Said, this particular disease hasn't so far made me angry with God or doubt him at all. As I said to you, there have been much harder things in my life and still are. There are heartaches about people I love and God's apparent inactivity to change this. This is much harder. But why would this disease cause such a reaction? If we accept that death is coming to everyone, and no pathway to death is particularly comfortable, 
Why would you single out this as a deal breaker with God? Why is it any worse than a gifted doctor who struggled with depression for many years or a young woman trapped in a loveless marriage or a man whose wife leaves him or a Christian imprisoned and tortured? I know these people and I don't see why my experience is any harder. It's about understanding that really it's not all about me. I don't take this personally as if God specifically picked out a heart disease and wrote it against my name. And I certainly don't take it as something Satan has done and God isn't able to do anything about it unless I help him by praying in a certain way, as some of my friends have suggested. No, this is how I experience this broken world and this comes to me from his good and sovereign hand, just as all the other parts of my life has, have, has, other parts of my life have come, both blessings and difficulties. Doesn't it become hard to work out which fits into each category, blessing or difficulty? Because we serve and follow a saviour whose glory was in his suffering, who promised trouble to his followers and invited them to take up a cross and follow. Why surprise them? And haven't we learned that the blessing is in the suffering and in the weakness is our strength? I think that too a different perspective of time helps. It's really not about this earth. This is the overture. The new creation is the full symphony. Then we will all praise, then we will all raise voices in praise. All relationships will be healed. All our service seen for what it truly is. And this disease will seem a mere blip. So they tell me I may have two years. This wonderfully focuses the mind and it's kind of exciting to see the enjoyment available in each day. And finally I am forced to really live as if it's all by grace. There's nothing I can add, no achievements to put my faith in. It's no longer possible to impress people, no longer important to learn more. It's about resting in grace and what Jesus has achieved. That's easy to say, but now I must really begin she has really understood the gospel the gospel of grace and I hope as we look at spiritual warfare and walking with God and standing firm we might learn more of those things this week too will you pray with me Lord God we thank you for your amazing grace to us in the Lord Jesus, in his death and resurrection, in free forgiveness. We pray, please, that any of us here who don't yet know him may come to know and love him and find the forgiveness that he won at such great cost. We pray, please, that this week we may better understand the gospel and the joy and hope of knowing the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name.